but he feels like an outsider. We are never more like the world when we exclude the struggling, the broken, when we exclude those who they feel like, like they have been excluded by everybody, that we're never more like the world at that time. But, but let's, let's include them. See, demons, I believe, demons tremble at a church who has hands that are reaching out, who has hands that are reaching out and, and including people. And, but, but demons, they, when a church starts driving people out, they're like, okay, this is exactly what we want. This is exactly what, what I would have for the church to be is one who is exclusive. I, was, uh, I read a quote too long ago by T.F. Tenney, just an incredible, incredible man of God. But he once said that the church is at its finest when God's people are, or, or God's people are at their best when we reach out, not when we push out. And that's really my, my focus today is a continuation of that as we continue looking at the outsiders. And in particular today, I want to look at two outsiders that we come across in the Christmas story. And two different people. And when, see, when the, when the Christmas story uh, is told, you get this picture. In fact, my, uh, I was working at the house yesterday, so I wasn't able to go. My wife took the kids to, uh, to Bethlehem Marketplace up in Angola, and they got to walk through this nativity scene, this live nativity scene, and go and see all these Christmas characters. And you come across them, and you see... Uh, all of these different characters who are standing there, and uh, perhaps even you might even have a nativity that's set up in your uh, in your own home. And in that nativity, you have all these different characters who are there, these uh, individuals, and uh, we see them sitting there, and many of them are recognizable, uh, but there are some, perhaps, that are forgotten. Some maybe that we overlook, and today... I want to look at the forgotten and the forgetful. So let's go to Luke chapter 2. We're just going to read a couple of verses beginning here in Luke chapter 2 verse 1. So that it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxing was first made when Cyrenius was the governor of Syria. All of them, they went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. He was to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. These words are very familiar words for the Christmas season. I'm sure that you have uh, read them many times, that the, this story here, you could tell it without opening up to Luke chapter 2. We know it. Uh, we know it all. We know about now, even from here, you have the angels that go and meet the shepherds out on the hillside. You have the wise men that come uh, eventually, and we kind of miss, uh, kind of 
mis- mistake that part of the story. They weren't really there uh, at the manger scene. But, uh, but you have the wise men that play the part in the whole Christmas story. And all of this, really this incredible, incredible thing that happens. But sometimes we might forget the fact that really all of this was taking place in the midst of misery. And you have this backdrop of all these, uh, all of this other stuff, this oppression that's taking place that's driving them to Bethlehem. You have the taxation. You say, okay, oppression. Well, the fact that they were being taxed was because they were oppressed. It was because they, as God's people, did not have full possession of the land that God had promised them. And so the, the taxing, the taxation, when this having to go to Bethlehem was the result of the fact that they were an oppressed people. You have the decrees by, by Caesar Augustus. You have the inconvenience of them having to travel, a pregnant woman having to travel all of these miles right before she was about to give birth to a child. You have all of this. She doesn't have a midwife to help her. She doesn't have her family beside her. No woman is, is there to encourage her. You have her about to bring forth a son in a manger, not inside of a building where she should be giving birth, but her in the manger. And so what an incredible story it is. And, and you know, all of this, and of course, all, we, we understand the, uh, how out of place the birth of a king was for Christmas. But I want to look even at some of these within this story who perhaps even get overlooked uh, even more. And the one in particular is this man, Joseph. You know, he's, he's one in the Christmas story. If you're, if you're coming up to a, uh, you're coming up to this scene of, of, uh, sort of a, a nativity scene, you could point out the, you could surely point out the wise men. You can point out Mary and the baby. You can point out uh, the, the angels. Uh, you could probably point out who the shepherds are. But they might also get mixed in with Joseph because Joseph, he doesn't really get much of the glamour and the glory in this story. Joseph is one who he didn't really have, uh, maybe in your mind, a big part to play. Even in the life of Jesus, once, once Jesus starts to live his life, Joseph kind of fades into the backdrop of the story. You have, you know, all these songs that we sing in, uh, in, around, in and around Christmas. You know, Mary has her song, many songs that are about Mary. Uh, you have the angels that they're included in all of the songs that, uh, you know, you have NHLC's Deo. This is all the songs that they sing and and you have their, their, all of these uh, things that are about them. The wise men or the three kings. You have the songs about them. But I, I can't really recall a song that's specifically about Joseph. Or even him being included in many Christmas songs. See, Joseph really doesn't have much. He's the, for, he's the forgotten one. He's the one that you don't really think of him when you think of the Christmas story. See, the fact is, though, that we forget ourselves if we forget Joseph. Because Joseph, he was an outsider. Joseph, 
if you understand his story, he was espoused to be married to Mary. And uh, this was not necessarily the same kind of, uh, of engagement process and marriage that, that we have today. Uh, this was a two-step process that marriages, they were, uh, they were oftentimes a, a, an arranged marriage, majority of the time an arranged marriage that would have taken place. And so uh, even as young as 12 or 13 years old, they would have been pledged to each other to be married. And so you have this period of time that, uh, that they knew that they were espoused to be married, but they were not yet married. Years later, they would take that next step, this formal marriage. But between that first and that second step is when we come across this Christmas story that the angel appears to Mary and says, you are with child. And Joseph, being this God-fearing man, he absolutely, I'm sure, was appalled at the fact that his wife comes and tell, or his wife-to-be comes to tell him that she's pregnant. He knows, well, this isn't my child. This, I've, I've been a God-fearing man. I, I have not slept with her. I, if she's telling me she's with child, she has this wild story to go with it. I, I, don't, I don't know if I can believe that. Here, here he is in, you know, in this, in this bind of, of saying, I love her. I'm going to be with her, and and it really, according to the law, at worst, she could have been stoned for doing this. At best, she was going to be shamed. Even, you know, just the fact that she's with child, that both of them are going to be shamed because the assumption is going to be that this is Mary and Joseph's child. This is what everybody's going to assume. This is the son of of Joseph, and here you have him, and really Joseph has a choice to make. Am I going to leave her? Am I going to allow her to go and to live the rest of her life with shame, or am I going to marry her? And he decides to not go to the divorce court, but rather go and to marry her. And so the two of them, they uh, they come, and and Joseph is inviting upon himself the same shame that Mary would have. Now he does go and uh, he he tells her, go be with your your cousin and uh, their their relative uh, who was also with child and uh, John the Baptist was to be born of, uh, you know, soon as well. But but you have her and she does go and she spends time with them. But but in all of this, Joseph is is taking the, he's going to take the heat He's going to take the shame. He's, he's, everybody's going to know, you guys weren't married. You had a, a child out of wedlock. And, and that's the assumption. But thank God that, uh, that in the middle of all of this, and his own questioning, that God sent an angel to Joseph as well. That, Mary, or that, that Gabriel showed up and, be, and told Joseph and confirmed the same thing. And I thank God for, for that, that, that there are signs that in times of questioning that God will give some signs and give some confirmation to us. And when we're questioning, when we don't know what to do, that God did come and, and show him, this, this is of me. This is my design. I know it doesn't make sense, but, but this is my child. 
This is my child. And so Joseph, he comes and let's go to uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. This is that angel who comes to him in his dream. It says, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. The angel is reminding Joseph of a scripture, reminding her, uh, reminding him of the fact that this has been prophesied of before, that there will be a child that, that will be born. And when Joseph awakens, he, he gets up, he takes, he doesn't take Mary to the divorce court, but rather he goes, he gets married to her. And this obedience of the forgotten man is something that really all of us all of us have the same opportunities in life. What are we going to do when things don't make sense? What are we going to do when, if, when we feel God prompting us to do, do something that doesn't make sense? Are we going to be obedient or are we going to go and do it our own way? Are we, are we going to try to figure this out some other way or, or are we just going to continue following in the path that God is leading us and directing us? You know, there's, there's some scriptures, the word of God right here that you read it and you say, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Are you going to be partially obedient or are you going to be fully obedient to the word of God? Right? We don't get to just pick and choose from the Word of God, but we don't just get to just to blot out some sections here because it doesn't fit what I feel like doing. God's looking for somebody who is fully obedient. God is looking not for partial obedience, but for complete obedience to His Word. Now, it's born out of love. It's not born out of the fact that it's here and I begrudgingly go and do it. It's all born out of relationship. But still, if his word says it, I ought to do it. Right? What happens when you're in prayer? What happens when you are in a place where you've been hurt, wounded by somebody? And then you're praying, God, would you just, would you just make this person suffer for everything that they've done? Would you just give them polio and all kinds of diseases? And That's maybe a little extreme. But wishing harm upon them, wishing ill upon somebody who has done something bad to you, and then... God reminds you of his word as you go and you're in prayer. And he says, let's pray for blessings upon this person rather than curses. And you say, I really don't want to do that. I really don't want to pray that you would bless them. But your word says it, so I'll do it. And you begin to pray. And as you begin to pray in obedience to what the word is saying and what God is prompting you to do. Something releases from you, right? Something begins to release from you of this, this anxiety that you feel over the situation. And this guilt even that you 
are carrying or the, the hurt that you have for that person. You begin to pray for somebody who hurts you. This is, this is walking in obedience to the Word of God. This, these are the hard things that we do when somebody has harmed you. And yet, God is saying, I, I need you to release it first. I need you to go to them and, and to let them know that, that you are forgiven. There's, those, these are the hard things, but it's the obedience of a man, just like Joseph here, that walked in obedience even when it didn't make sense. We have so many opportunities in our own life to choose our own path. We have so many opportunities uh, for us to just go and do whatever we want to do. But what God is saying is, hey, I have a better plan for your life. You can choose to live your life however you want. But if you follow me, and if you will speak to me on a daily basis, if you'll come and you'll have conversation with me, I'll lead you. My word will be a lamp under your feet and a light under your path. I may not give you the whole... I'm not the, I'm not the, the beam that's going out, the, the, the high beams on your, uh, on your car. I'm not going to illuminate everything that's out there. I'm, I'm not going to be this, uh, you know, those... You walk or you're driving down at night and you uh, down the highway and come across a construction zone where they have all the lights that make it look like look like day. So I'm not I'm not turning night into day and, and lighting everything up so that you know exactly where you're going in life. But I will be the lamp to your feet and the light to your path. That in obedience you may not have the whole story, but I'll at least show you what the next step is. But you got to trust me. You got, you got to trust me here. See, for Joseph, he had to trust God. This, the instantaneous obedience of this forgotten man, this, this man Joseph, all, all he needed was one verse of a scripture that came to him in a dream. This angel that appeared to him in a dream that, that reminded him that there would be a child that would be born of God. That was enough for him that was enough to now walk in obedience. He's, and, and I understand that, uh, you know, that here he is, the fifth wheel in the miracle. Here he is, the one that really, I mean, he's just the man that is going to help raise this child. But, but he's, not, he's not really the one giving birth to the child. He's the one, you know, maybe he didn't know all this, but he's not going to get all the glory in the Christmas story. He's not going to have any songs written about him. But someone had to fulfill the forgotten man's role. Someone was going to have to be the father figure to Jesus. Someone would have to be snickered at behind all of these people who are talking about Mary. Somebody was going to have to stand up for her and talk about how she is a good woman. Somebody would have to be there. Somebody would eventually have to load her up on a donkey, travel all the way to Bethlehem. Somebody was going to have to do that. This child that he was raising was not his own child, but someone was going to have to turn their back on their, their somebody was going to have to go and, and have people turn their backs on them and still say, here I am, I'm standing by your side. Someone is going to have to say, this isn't really about me. This is about the plan that God has in store, the plan that God's unfolding right now. See, someone has to forget themselves in order to be part of the story. They have to forget about all of the things that they thought might happen as a godly man, as 
you know, how their story might unfold. He had to forget about himself. He could have walked away from the situation, but instead he forgot about his own pride. He let that down, and he said, God, whatever you will, here I am. So this is Joseph. Now, this is not the last time that Joseph is displayed, uh, his, or where he displayed his obedience, but we have other instances where we see the obedience of Joseph. You have Herod, who purposed to kill the baby boys in Bethlehem. It's in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, that we see this angel again come and speak to Joseph in a dream. And he, not knowing this decree from Herod yet, um, but he now, being aware of it, is told to arise and take the young child and his mother, flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And so when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and he departed into Egypt. Again, we see instantaneous obedience. He didn't need a second dream. He didn't need uh, you know, a, another confirmation of what's going to happen. But when God said it, it says that night, he says, let's go. We're packing up. We're going to Egypt. We're leaving this repetition of heaven did not say, take your child and your wife. God said, take the young child and his mother. See, twice we read this, that Joseph, he's saying, you're the outsider of the story. This is not your child, but this is take the young child and his mother. See, had Joseph not been the man that he was, he could have been resentful. He could have, he could have said, well, why is this child upending my life? Why, why is, you know, why am I having to go here and there? I, I'm a businessman. I've got I've to make a living somehow. Why should I be so inconvenienced by this child? Egypt? I, I don't want to go to Egypt. I mean, Joseph, he could have resisted at any moment, but instead he obeyed because God, God was leading him to do this, and he forgot himself. Forgot his own, his own desires, his own things, and instead followed after what God was having him to do. So, I just want us to think about our own life. And, and are there times where we put our own selves ahead of what God really is calling for us to do? Do we put ourselves on a pedestal and say... Unless you do it my way, God, unless you make my path straight and do it in the way that I have planned out, then I'm not going to do it. But when we forget ourselves and say, Lord, whatever you have, God, whatever path you want to take me on, I'm willing to follow. I'll be obedient to your word. See, this is what we see from Joseph. This is what we see from this man who he forgets himself and instead he goes and follows what God would do. Now, now, let's, let's talk, talk about that partial commitment that sometimes we have because we do see many stories of people in Scripture or, or groups of people who are partially committed to God. There are just a few stories. You have the people who they come out of Egypt, the Israelites, when they come out of Egypt, you have many of them who they, even though they exited Egypt, Egypt never left them. And in their hearts, 
They wanted to return. They were there in the, in the wilderness, and they wanted to return to Egypt. And this partial commitment limited what God did for them. They were never able to go into the promised lands. It limited their ability of what they thought God could do. They, they were partially committed. If you look at the king, and uh, there, there, there was a king in, uh, in Scripture who was told to fire some arrows out of a dying prophet's window, and he only fired three. And the king then said, if you would have just emptied your quiver, then you would have had complete victory. But he was partially committed. He didn't want to just keep on going and doing this. And, and there's, he wasn't full of devotion. If you, if you go to the New Testament, in fact, all the way to Revelation, you see the church in Laodicea. In Laodicea, they, they were labeled as being neither cold nor hot. They enjoyed sitting on the fence. And because of that, because of their partial commitment, God said he's going to spew them out of his mouth. This is partial commitment. God is looking for full obedience, not just partial commitment. If you go back to the Old Testament, you have this this woman named Orpah, who she journeyed with her fellow widow, Ruth. At some point, Orpah stopped and kissed Naomi goodbye. See, Naomi was her mother-in-law. Orpah had the same rights as Ruth did. She also had the right of a kinsman redeemer. Within the Jewish law, she could have, have you know, by law, been given another husband. But, but Ruth is the only one that ends up in the Christmas story, not Orpah. It's interesting that, that Ruth would become the, uh, the great-great-grandmother of David, whereas the Jews, they believe, and I don't know, I don't have the, the lineage, the, the tree, but there's at least some belief that Orpah would become the ancestors of a giant named Goliath. This commitment level of one generation, it reaches to the next and then to the next and then to the next. That Ruth was committed. Ruth was not just partially committed, but she was fully devoted. And it goes from one generation to the next. I believe that to raise a godly family to secure a lasting heritage, there's going to be a lot of times where we need to forget ourselves and we need to say, God, whatever your will is for me, I'll do it. And our kids are looking at that. The next generation is looking at how committed are we. We are only, we are only one generation away from truth leaving. You're, you're only one generation from, from the next generation just continuing on a path of partial commitment and taking it to the next step and walking away. You're always, you always have the next generation behind you, whether it's your kids or it's just somebody who you're discipling, somebody that, that, that they're watching your walk with Jesus. They can see how committed you are. And it tells a story. How committed are you? See, Joseph was committed, even though he was forgotten, even though he was kind of in the backdrop of the story, Joseph was committed. Here he was in this story, but uh, as we come even further down the life of Jesus, you see that the last time that Joseph is mentioned is at the temple. Jesus is 12 years old, and it's in Luke 2.49. And the words that Jesus says when he is finally found, because he's been left there at the temple, he says, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? 
And apparently this is the signal that Joseph, you're no longer needed. Jesus knows who he is. Jesus is about his father's business. No longer is he just the carpenter's son. But he knew his true occupation was right there in the temple. And so here you have this story, this, this life of Joseph. And in fact, you have this one more picture here of Joseph the carpenter. It's a, um, this is a painting that's been hung in the, in the Louvre for many years. And here you can see in this, uh, in this painting here is this piece of wood down here, but then the tool that's being used in that shape of a cross illuminating, you know, this, this fact of this is what Jesus really is called to do. That he was there as, as the carpenter, but really he's shaping him for what his real business was, which was redemption. So Joseph is the forgotten man in the story. But there was a forgetful man in the story as well. And this forgetful man, I'll try to go quickly through his story, but uh, it's one that we all, we all know. It's the innkeeper. And the innkeeper is the one who... He told Joseph and Mary, you don't have, we don't have any room here. And maybe you think, well, you know, they should have made some reservations, or what was he to do? He didn't have a room. He also had a pregnant woman right outside of his door, and he could have given up his own room. Instead, he says, yeah, you can go out in the barn. He did have at least one room. He could have given up himself, slept somewhere else, and I don't know, maybe you think, well, I mean, okay, that's, that's just him, you know. You know, he would, didn't want to inconvenience himself. But the fact is, all it takes is one little inconvenience. And he could have had a pregnant mother giving birth to her child in a safe place rather than out in the barn. And he was forgetful of the fact that, that there are times where, there are times where business and busyness catch up to us. And they cause us to make decisions that we shouldn't make. We can get so wrapped up in, in our own selves, so wrapped up in things that we miss the fact that Jesus, he wants to come in and to, to cause us to, 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 to minister to somebody. Or God wants to come in and even minister to us. <clears throat> we can get so distracted by a million different things that we lose sight of the one thing that matters. Here, here you have Mary and Joseph standing at the door and knocking. And, and, they, and they're told, I'm sorry, we don't have any room here. But how many times has Jesus stood at our door and he's knocked and we say, go away and come back at a convenient season? Right? We're forgetful about the fact that Jesus is standing there. And here we are. We can even be celebrating his birth. In this season right now, and he's standing there and he's knocking and he's saying, hey, I'm trying to get your attention. I want to do something in you right now, but you're so busy with everything else that you're forgetting what really matters. See, the best way that we can prepare for the coming of Christ is to never forget the presence of Christ right now. The fact that he is here. Yes, he is coming, but he is here right now. Let's not forget that. It's difficult to, it's, to stress the importance of, rem, of, the, of, of remembering in the Bible. See, in the Bible, the word remember is found more than 550 times. It's usually 
used as a command. God is telling his people, remember me. Remember my ways. Do not forget. See, the most common type of forgetfulness is when we simply choose not to remember. We forget God. We get priorities misaligned. We forget what he is requiring of us. We forget God. I want to go back to that story of, that I opened up with here today. Kind of left off on that. and You're probably thinking, why did we talk about Russia and these Faber eggs? But it was Kieran, uh, Kieran McCarthy. Uh, he operates this antique shop in London. And he is considered as the foremost expert on Faber eggs. And it was one day just a few years ago that he looked up. And there stood this man just in blue jeans, a plaid shirt, and looking a little out of place in his shop. And this man, he spoke in a Midwestern U.S. accent. And he was clearly out of place, but he began to tell Mr. McCarthy how he had flown to London for the purpose of meeting him. Because he had looked up on Google and he had found out that this man knew a whole lot about Faber eggs. Now, this man from the United States was a junk dealer, and he had gone to a flea market where he had purchased a lot of scrap metal, a lot of it, and it was $14,000 that he had paid for some scrap metal. His goal was he was going to melt it all down. This sounds like something that would be right in the wheelhouse of little Jamie over here. He's going to melt it all down. He's going to sell it and hoping just to make uh, maybe $500 or so. But as he was going through the metal, he was kind of cleaning it out first, he came across this unusual item that was in there. And at the time, you know, he, he, he opened this up, this item, and he, as he opened it, revealed a clock inside of it. He asked Mr. McCarthy if he could show him a picture of the item. He didn't bring it with him. And when McCarthy stared at this photo of this item that was there just on the kitchen counter of this man next to a cupcake, he nearly fell over because he could not believe the fact that there was a Faber egg, unmistakable, the holy grail of all Faber experts. One of these lost Faber eggs had somehow made its way to the United States. And it had been placed inside of a box of junk metal and sold at a flea market. Immediately, Kieran McCarthy said, we got to get on an airplane, and I've got to go see this. They jumped on a plane. They went to the United States, and as soon as he walked into that house, he saw this thing sitting there on the counter. He knew this is exactly what I thought it was. This is the 43rd egg that was discovered. You can see there there were, uh, you may not be able to sit here, but there were some gemstones that were missing. There were a few little things that, uh, that had, you know, come up lost in the process of this, uh, this egg's journey. But it was unmistakable that this gold that still had its sheen, this gold and luster, and, and, and this gentleman from the Midwest who he was, to this day, he, he wants to remain anonymous. We don't know who he is. But he thought he could buy some scrap metal, melt it down, and maybe get $500. At a recent auction, this egg was sold 
and a private collector purchased it for $33 million. (laughs) See, what was made as a gift to never be forgotten, this gift that was given to the royals, never forget it, it had been forgotten. This priceless treasure had ended up at a junkyard. But for the eye of an expert, this treasure, it may have been lost forever. And see, as we, as we close today, and I know our Sunday school classes made our way in already, but Jesus, Jesus Christ is that treasure that's in the field today. So buy the field. Jesus Christ, he is the pearl of great price. Give everything to obtain it. If you can just remember the time when the disciples asked Jesus, they said that we've left everything to follow you. We, we've left our reputations behind. We've left our jobs behind, our houses, our families. We've left all of that behind. But Jesus said to them, if, you, if you've left all of that, the fact that you've forgotten yourself, as long as you've forgotten yourself in me, then you haven't left anything behind. And that's what I want us to do today is let's forget ourselves. Just forget yourselves in Him. And it's going to be repaid over many, many times. You have the choice right now. Forget about Jesus or forget about yourself. And let yourself come to the one who He has everything. Everything that you need. Amen. Could we just close our eyes? Jesus, thank you, Jesus. You know my name. Ooh, hallelujah. You know my name. He knows my name. He knows my name. And oh, how he walks with me. And oh, how he talks with me. And oh, how he
Hallelujah, Jesus. I am your own. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah. Come on. I am his. I said you forget yourself and you lose yourself in him. The reality is when you are his.